Hi everyone, my name is Jason. I'm one of the student ministers here at Grace Point. Uh, what a privilege it is for me to bring to you God's Word. Before we begin, let me pray for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. Uh, we thank you that you want what is best for us. Now help us now as we listen to your voice to learn to be faithful and to honor your name more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If Chinese is your first language, uh, you may have heard of this saying. Uh, when the upper beam is not straight, the lower beam is crooked. Now have a think, what saying is that? And you might be wondering, wow, in English? How can it sound so right and so wrong at the same time? Now, this saying talks about corrupt leaders and rulers. That when a leader, when a ruler is corrupt, then their influence trickles down. If a politician is corrupt, it's, far, it's hard to find a fair justice system. If a father is immoral, the child will less likely be a model citizen. Or if a pastor is ungodly, the church is likely to be unhealthy. Now, last week, Tim so helpfully opened our series in Malachi, and we saw how the priests have broken the covenant. This week, we see this corruption extend to the people. We see priestly corruption leading down to covenant unfaithfulness. And if we are not careful to heed God's warning to them, we too might fall into this trap. Now, starting with our relationship with God, if our hearts are not in the right place, then everything else could fall apart. But today, if we listen to God's word in a humble heart, we can see how faithfulness to God and to others is actually what God wants for us. As we look at Malachi chapter 2, today's sermon will have three points. You can see that in your outlines. Firstly, corrupted priesthood, covenant unfaithfulness, and comfort in Christ. Corrupted priesthood, covenant unfaithfulness, and comfort in Christ. Now point one, corrupted priesthood. Last week, we heard about how God's people have broken God's covenant. We saw that in two ways, doubting God's love and not offering the right sacrifices. Now, this week, we see two more ways God's people break the covenant. Now, follow along as God continues to warn the priests. Come with me to verse 1. Verse 1. And now, you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen and if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them because you have not resolved to honor me. We'll pause there. We see the first way they break the covenant is failing to honor God's name. Failing to honor God's name. And this is just a continuation from last week. In chapter 1, verse 6, God asks His people, If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? The priests had already failed to honor God in the temple sacrifices. And this week we discover that they fail in another aspect. Come down with me to verse 7. Verse 7. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. 
because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. Wow, there's so much to unpack here, but let me point out two main things. Firstly, we see that they have also failed in teaching. We may have assumed that the role of a priest is limited just to temple sacrifices. And while that is absolutely true, that in the Old Testament, only Levi's descendants are set apart to offer sacrifices, that is not all. They were also instructed to teach the law, to give instruction, and to pass on the Torah to the next generation. And this is so closely related to verses 4 to 6. If you have your Bibles open, you might want to have a quick glance there, verses 4 to 6. And God here is talking about His covenant with Levi. And while in the Old Testament there is no clear record of God formalizing a covenant with Levi, uh, but Jeremiah 33 and Nehemiah 13 both mention this. God's covenant with the Levitical priesthood. And so there is a covenant with Levi. But what exactly does that covenant mean? Well, for one, the fact that it is a covenant means that they have a special role. God especially chose them to be priests. Levi's descendants have the privilege and the responsibility of offering sacrifices and teaching the law. And we see in verse 5, their teaching was meant to bring about life and peace. Life because the Torah climaxes with Moses calling the people, choose life. And peace, because choosing to live God's way brings about wholeness, prosperity, and right relationships. But notice in our passage, what have they done? We read again in verse 8. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi. Not only have they failed to teach They have also caused many to stumble. And isn't that what we see in the prosperity gospel today? Elliot preached about this last month. They say, if you give, you'll receive more. And it's clear that they have failed to teach. They have taken the Bible out of context. And they have caused many to stumble, believing in a hollow promise that actually promises too little. That's how the priests in Malachi's day have failed as well. But that's not their only failure. Their second failure is failing to live God's way themselves. Look at verse 8 again. We might have missed this. Verse 8. But you have turned from the way. Or look at verse 9. So I have caused you to be despised. Because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in the matters of the law. Church, the reason why they failed to teach the people is because they themselves have turned from God's way. Now, I remember in high school, there was a head teacher who was known, unfortunately, for smoking. Now, every week, students would walk past the bus stop outside the school 
and they would see this teacher light up a cigarette. Now, without telling you which school this is, God bless Cine Tech, uh, and as if uh, that's not bad enough, our school was also known for students taking drugs. Uh, I remember uh, the school captain of my year, he took drugs, uh, but despite this public knowledge, he was still voted in as the school captain. And there was no intervention from the teachers. Now, I'm not saying correlation equals causation. Drugs and smoking are two very different things. But would we be surprised that a school where the head teacher can be seen smoking every week would produce drug-taking students and even school captains? Are we surprised? And so, in the same way, we can easily see that a leadership that has turned from God's way they would fail to turn people from sin. And the reason why they have failed to teach the people is because they themselves have turned from God's way. And church, before we continue, isn't this a good place, a good reminder for all of us, all of us who are responsible for others in our care? For parents with children, for extreme leaders who lead youths, for CG leaders who lead members, Sunday school teachers who teach kids. Again, the upper beam is not straight, and the lower beam is crooked. We have to watch our life and doctrine closely. We need to live rightly in order to teach rightly, lest we turn from God's way and then cause others to stumble. Now, we have seen how the te- priests have pray- failed to teach. We now see how the people break the covenant. And now I point to covenant unfaithfulness. Now come down with me to verse 10. Read verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Now, what do you think is the key word here? Profaning the covenant? Well, yes, that is a very key concept here. Now, to profane a covenant is to defile it, to pollute it. But the key word here is unfaithfulness. Now, unfaithfulness appears five times in this section. Five times. And to be unfaithful is to deal deceitfully or faithlessly. It's agreeing to do one thing, but actually doing another. It's like if you agree to pay your Uber driver 40 bucks uh, at the end of the trip, he actually gives these ridiculous reasons to charge you extra. He says, oh, you talk too much, you're wasting my breath. Or you are too tall, your hair made the ceiling dirty. Now, of course, that's not from personal experience, not at all. And so, in the same way, the people have been deceitful. They have been unfaithful to one another. They have promised to honor God and honor each other, but they have lied. How have they been unfaithful? We see this in two main ways. Firstly, we see this in verse 11. They have married women who worship a foreign god. In the law, God explicitly forbids intermarriage. Deuteronomy 7.4, they cannot intermarry because they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And so we see that at the heart of intermarriage, the problem isn't the marriage itself. The problem is worship. 
intermarriage leads Israel to worship other gods. And we can't help but to think of the fall of King Solomon. Israel's golden age ended when Solomon took 700 wives and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to God. And you know why Solomon did this? 1 Kings 11 says, Solomon loved many foreign women. Despite God's clear law, Solomon held fast to them in love. And so at the heart of unfaithfulness is the problem of love, is the problem of worship. Breaking God's covenant involves not being single-mindedly and totally devoted towards God. Breaking God's covenant involves not loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so that's the first problem, intermarriage. The second problem is divorce. Look with me to verse 14. Verse 14. They're weeping and they're wailing because God is not accepting their sacrifices. Why? Verse 14. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. I was at a wedding yesterday and also last week. And in both weddings, the pastors asked the guests to stand up. The guests also say a vow as a support and vowing to pray for the married couple. And so the guests are the witnesses of their marriage. If someone were to question whether their marriage was legit, they could ask one of you, one of the witnesses, and they would say, yes, they are married. I was there. And this is what verse 14 means when God says, I am the witness between you and the wife of your youth. I was there. I saw you make those covenant vows. And I'm angry that you have broken them. Now, church, I'm aware divorce is a very sensitive topic. It's a very heartbreaking topic. For those who have experienced divorce, for those who live in a broken family, I can't pretend to know how much grief and sorrow that you have experienced. But I do want to take some time to acknowledge three things. Firstly, divorce is not part of God's good design. Marriage is God's good gift to us for companionship, for the natural expression of affections, and for the nurture of godly children. From the beginning, Genesis 2.24 clearly says, What God has joined together, let no one separate. And in some manuscripts, verse 16 of our passage says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord God, the God of Israel. And the fact that God uses such strong language to denounce divorce means that marriage is held up so highly. In fact, scholars say that nowhere else in the Old Testament do we find such an elevated view of marriage. And so for divorce to happen, it shows how broken and fallen our world is, how devastating sin is. That's why, secondly, God deeply cares about those who are hurt by divorce. 
if we grieve how much sin has driven a wedge between two people. That the relationship that should bring the most joy and the most blessing actually brings the greatest hurt and sorrow. Then how much more does it grieve God? That's why there are protections in the Bible for those married. Those in a broken marriage. To be sure, divorce with no legitimate grounds is forbidden. But at the same time, God protects those who are in marriages that have effectively stopped being marriages. If one person repeatedly breaks those marriage vows and they are unrepentant, then the victim is allowed to initiate divorce. God promises to protect and he has deep compassion. But thirdly, just as God promises to restore the brokenness of our world, God will redeem broken relationships. If repentance and forgiveness is not possible in this lifetime, then final restoration is promised in the new creation. When we think about the marriage between Christ and the church, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that even if we live in grief and sorrow now, we can look forward to a time when we, the bride of Christ, will live with Christ forever. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And if you are struggling today, may you find rest in Christ, our faithful bridegroom. May we await his return when we will make all things right and all things new. Having acknowledged how painful divorce is, I actually want to go back to why God condemns divorce here in Malachi 2. Because as painful as divorce is, is not the heart of the problem. It's a symptom, not the disease. And verse 10 gives us some clues. Come back to verse 10. Do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? And we see the same rhetorical questions down in verse 15. Has not one God made you? And what is implied here is that the people should be one. They have one creator. They are in covenant relationship with one God. And since they have one God, they should be one people. And within that one people, they should be faithful. They should have honored God. They should have honored one another. But because they have broken their covenant with God, now they are breaking the covenant with one another. Think about this. By their intermarriage, by becoming one flesh with women who worship other gods, they have broken their oneness with the people of God. By their divorce, by breaking their one flesh with the wife of their youth, they have broken the oneness they have with one another. Again, we see that this problem starts at the top. Just like the failures of the priests, the problem is worship. That once they fail to worship God, they fail to keep the covenant with one another. Do we see it now? That at the heart of their unfaithfulness is misplaced worship. That once their relationship with God breaks, their relationship with everyone else also suffers. We have seen what Malachi 2 says to Israel. But what does that have to do with us? 
What does their unfaithfulness say about us? How does their false worship relate to us? Let's dive into that. We're now at point three, comfort in Christ. Now, if God calls out the priests for not honoring him, we might also fall into the same trap. Sometimes we don't honor God because we listen to ourselves. We think we know best. How many times have we made big decisions without consulting God in prayer? Or instead of listening to God, we listen to others. We believe what they say will bring joy to us. But in reality, we just want them to tell us what we want to hear. How many times have we asked a friend for advice, knowing that they'll be so nice, they'll tell us what we like. And so at the heart of failing to honor God is the fact that we love to honor ourselves, making much of ourselves, and we don't value God's glory. That's a problem that Israel had, but that's also in our hearts. Or what about unfaithfulness? Just as Israel was unfaithful to God and to each other, we too can be unfaithful. But think about it. Why would someone be unfaithful? Could it be because being faithful is boring? It's mundane? Is it because there are alternatives that are more attractive? And in the same way, in our relationship with God, after being, becoming a Christian for a while, we might start to think Christian life is boring. Coming to church every week is boring. The same church service, the same three-point sermon, the same people I've got to chat with at morning tea. Watching a sports, sports game on Sunday seems more fun, right? Or reading the Bible and praying every day is boring. And the same Bible, the same prayer, Repeating the same thing just doesn't mean anything to me anymore. Why don't I skip devotions? Use that time to do some life admin, to do an assignment, to watch a show. That seems more productive, right? At the heart of all these symptoms is the belief that God doesn't meet my need. God doesn't meet my need. When we begin to think my need is not met, we begin to push God aside. We say to God, I don't need you, God. I can do this myself. And so we isolate ourselves. We constantly go after people or things that we think can meet our needs. But the problem is, we will never find it. We will always be wandering. And we will never find that someone or something that meets our every need. And when we look at how similar we are to the Israelites, the answer is very clear, right? The priests thought faithfulness in teaching was boring. They thought God wasn't meeting their needs, and so their hearts turned aside. Or the people thought faithfulness was boring. They thought she wasn't meeting their needs, and so they divorce and they marry foreign women. When they think God cannot meet their need, and they disconnect from God, of course they wander from Him, and of course everything else in life falls apart makes so much sense. Think about this. How do we expect a tree to grow when it is uprooted? When it can't draw any more nutrients from the soil? How do we expect the fan to turn on if it is unplugged and the source is cut off? And so it is foolish for us to try to live a good life apart from the life giver. 
At the heart of a good life, a fulfilling life, a satisfying life is a close relationship with the life giver. At the heart of enjoying God's good creation is rightly giving thanks to the creator. At the heart of good relationships with others is firstly a right relationship with God. St. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. And so church, the good news for our wandering hearts is that God has come in Jesus to meet our every need. When we fail to honor God, Jesus perfectly honors God on our behalf. Jesus is the faithful priest who exemplifies the covenant with Levi. He revered the Father and stood in awe of his name. True instruction was in his mouth. Nothing false was found on his lips. Jesus walked with God in peace and uprightness. Jesus turned many from sin. And not only that, Jesus is the faithful bridegroom. He loves his bride, the church. And he even demonstrates his love and commitment for his bride by giving himself up for her and dying for her. On Calvary's hill, Jesus is the faithful one who takes on all our unfaithfulness, nailed to the cross, and declared his people free from the stain of unfaithfulness. We have been united to Christ, died with him, raised with him. He is the perfect bridegroom who meets our every need. And even if we don't meet his needs, he will never divorce us. Jesus meets our need for full forgiveness. He meets our need of undying love. He meets our need of leading a good life. In church, the love of Christ compels us, the people of God, to be faithful to God and to others. Because we know Jesus is faithful and is absolutely committed to us. Once we know that our every need is met in Christ, we won't need to seek it anymore in someone or something else. Once we know that a life of faithfulness is good and stable, now we won't find it boring or mundane anymore. Church, this is the good news that our wandering hearts want to hear. Jesus has come to meet our every need. And church, since Jesus has met our every need, that changes the way we live. Let us now close with a few application points. Number one. Listen to Jesus, because his words lead to life. That was how the priests started their downfall. They didn't listen to God. But now, now that we know Jesus meets our every need, we can be eager to hear God's word. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We can trust that since our greatest need is met in Jesus, He will also meet our every need now. And that means we can listen to God's Word and trust that following His Word leads to good life. We can start by listening to God's Word, by daily sitting before His Word, praying for God to open His Word, feed us and nourish us. And since Jesus is the greater Levi, Since true instruction was found in his mouth, since nothing false was found in his lips, we could go back to the Gospels 
and read the words of Jesus. Well, I'm reading the Gospel of John for my devotions currently, and I thought I was familiar with John chapter 3, since John 3.16 is such a famous verse, right? But then when I read it again, there are things that Jesus said that made me go, wow, really? Jesus said that? And it shows that I don't know the words of Jesus as well as I thought I would. And so let me encourage you also to listen to Jesus, to come back to his word again. Be amazed by the words that he says and how much life Jesus' words bring to you. That's the first one. Listen to Jesus. Number two, honor God's name because it satisfies the longing of our hearts. Now, we saw that at the heart of their sin, the unraveling of their entire lives began when they stopped honoring God's name. And it led to broken covenant, failed leadership, unfaithfulness in marriage. A broken relationship with God and failing to honor God as we should and not giving God the glory due His name, that's our tendency to. The priests and the people stopped honoring God's name because they thought God didn't meet their need. Now that we know Jesus meets our every need, we can resolve to honor God's name. This week, as we wake up each day for work or for rest or for study, may we remember this verse, 1 Corinthians 10.31, that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. It can be as simple as waking up and praying, Lord, today, whatever I do, I do it for your glory. That's the second one. Honor God's name. Number three, be faithful because it gives the steadiness that we long for. We saw how the people were unfaithful to God and it led them to be unfaithful to each other. In our time, unfaithfulness is still as destructive as it was back then. If you are married or if you are about to get married, and I'm preaching to myself here, then faithfulness is your greatest responsibility. Even if there are moments when you think your spouse doesn't meet your need, you remember your vow. You remember what you promised on your wedding day. This is the vow you made in front of the whole congregation. This is your covenant before God. When you think your spouse isn't meeting your need, remember that you are not to find all your satisfaction in a spouse. Instead, all your needs are met in Jesus. He is the faithful bridegroom who will never forsake you. And when we promise to live in faithfulness, living a faithful life is actually what gives us the steadiness that we need. We won't need to constantly look for someone else because no one can meet all your needs apart from Jesus. And so verse 15 is appropriate. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife or husband of your youth. Church, since Jesus has met our greatest need, let us listen to the words of Jesus, resolve to honor God's name and be faithful to our spouse. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is so relevant to us. We thank you that you call us to honor your name and to be faithful because that is what is best for us. Now, when we don't honor your name, 
when we are not faithful, everything else in life falls apart. Lord God, please help us in this. We know we are sometimes weak, we may become bored, we may believe and lie that you don't meet our needs. But if we have our greatest need met in Jesus, may we trust that you will also meet our every need. Help us in our weakness. Help us to live the good life that you want us to live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.